did we figure out a formula for introducing these things? Are we live? Yes. No, we didn't at all. I'm Tom Aber. And I'm I'm the other guy, Baldwin Anderson. <laughs> the other guy, Baldwin Anderson. So, this is number 10. Is it? We're in double figures. Oh, terrifying. I know. Suddenly 10, 10 things of something are now out. Well, will be out there at some way, shape or form or stage. So... Hi, if you've been listening all the way through, if you haven't listened all the way through, then then we're going to talk about books and publishing and, and digital and what those things might be. We do these because we want to and because, you know, it keeps off the streets. <laughs> um, but actually, we wrote, we wrote and published a book last September, which at one point was called This Is Not A Book, and I think may still be called This Is Not A Book. Um, online, yeah, the online, digital version. The digital version. So a lot of this kind of spins out of that, and if you Google either of us, there are links to that. But actually, this is more slightly more topical, slightly more what we're thinking at any one point. So there are arguments in these podcasts, which are definitely arguments, um, and occasionally come to blows that, that move beyond some of the things presented in that book. But the book was always meant to live and meant to kind of breathe and, and be updated and change anyway. So the, I think these fit into that ecosystem. Where we left last time, I realise I'm doing the introduction now, aren't I? This is <laughs> the most I talk in the whole thing, I think. Is we finished up with you talking about perceptions of digital within a print environment. And you were relating kind of anecdotally that you... If you had a pound for every time that you'd been sneered at for being involved in digital yeah. reproduction by someone whose paradigm was print, then you could have afforded an iPad Mini, which, you know, depending on what they're selling yeah. for, means two, three hundred. I'm, 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 mm. I'm seri- ser- seriously considering going to the London Book Fair so that I'm uh, 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 <laughs> up with people so I can plausibly claim, uh, claim, uh, claim that I could buy the more expensive iPad Mini. Fine! Just to, okay, yes. boost, <laughs> just to boost those number, uh, numbers up a bit. Yeah, but and, whenever um, I... Uh, sort of part of the reason why I won't be able to say, like, uh, you know, like a budget iPad Air or something is is because I've um, avoided London Book Fair for the past two, uh, two yeah, ish years. Right, okay. So if I actually had been, you know, and uh, and after the first year of Unbound, I basically started avoiding going to... Uh, Can I be snippy book for a moment? Can we be snippy? Are we allowed to be snippy on You're this? You're allowed to be snippy. Oh, brilliant. Okay, just only because... Um, one thing London Book Fair has done for the last four years, mm-hmm. certainly three years, four years, alongside London Book Fair, usually the day so before, is they've done a thing called the Digital Minds Conference, Digital Minds Event, Digital Minds thing. Are you talking um, about the quantum conference? Oh, I'm going to talk about quantum just for a second, because one of the things that and we, we have touched on this before is our impression from being slightly outside and inside the industry of the value of going to something like this. Now, yeah. I'm an academic. Um, I get, I go to conferences and I give papers and they're usually hideously expensive, but I'm not paying for them. Um, although often there's a kind of subsidised rate if you're giving a paper. I'm then frequently emailed by governmental organisations in London who are, uh, there was one this week saying, you know, you could, we're hosting this thing about research leadership. We'd like you to come and, and, and attend because you're a research leader. I thought, well, possibly <laughs> someone's perspective now. And I went down, I'm like, okay, that could be interesting. It could be interesting. Oh, it's going to be a thousand pounds. This feels like a Ponzi scheme. It feels like something that not many people are going to get a human benefit from. And one of the things that struck that has struck me repeatedly about digital minds, this is where it's relevant to what we talk about here, is that it feels like something that you pay as someone who works in publishing an awful lot of money to go to in order that you can ignore everything that's being said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, it's a, um I, I likened it you uh, to um I remember um before Future Book uh, the last future book I went to before I stopped, um, where I wrote a blog post um, comparing um, these conferences to morality plays, where the entire point of digital or anything digital at these conferences was to the uh, was to serve the same role as the devil in a morality play. So you're supposed to be charming and tempting and sinful. But ultimately, you're there so that people can uh, reinforce their own moral righteousness in 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 keeping to their 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 existing faith and convictions. Yes, mm. um, and it sort of um, uh, th- these conferences have nothing to do with actually changing minds or learning anything. No. Because if you if you if you really wanted to learn things. You're probably better off actually buying a print book on the topic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is sort of you know, and um, uh, or you know, there's uh, so many videos. I mean, just go on YouTube and Google Alan Alan Kay, and there, there's going to be something like close to fifty hours worth of Alan Kay just talking 
incredibly deeply mm. about digital structures and ways of thinking and working digital. Mm. Just overall, the, the, the number of hours of that of that is probably the same amount of time as as most as, as most people in the industry spend on, uh, at conferences per yep. year. Spend a week taking a few of those every day. It'll do you a world of good. Mass- it will be massively. You learn massively more from well, that than any any conference yeah. on on the subject. Or I might suggest actually go back and and the one thing about before we get onto quantum, um, the one thing about the Digital Minds conference is they do archive very well all the previous talks. So if you do mm-hmm. want, and if you're out there and working publishing, if you're out there, it sounds like you. <laughs> broadcasting this from a mountaintop. Um, Bill Thompson's well, talk you know, two years this is ago. Noel. This is Noel. Yes, all right. Bill Thompson's talk two years ago is astonishing. Neil Gaiman's talk the year before is possibly as astonishing. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I think I would extol anybody in publishing to do is just re-listen to those, watch them again, and take notes and absorb what's being said because. Bill's possibly more than Neil's. I think Bill Bill spoke eloquently and incredibly well and with a great deal of authority about how we see digital, how we see digital mm. as a space and how it's different to print and different to books. And the impression I got was that everybody in that room nodded and listened and paid their 300 quid to hear him and then it had no impact whatsoever. No kind of well, trickle down, no moment of infrastructural change to think about where we were last time but it, it ties in with what i've been talking about um online uh lately obsessing about it's, right. it's what i've been reading uh, reading a lot about uh, a lot about over the past um few months and yeah. it's mm. the idea that it's never the individuals who create the product it's the system yeah because um, the way I, uh, I actually had this idea yesterday evening about how to um present this is i I don't know if you're are you familiar with David Pye's dichotomy of workmanship of risk versus workmanship workmanship of certainty. No, go on. He, mm. He's a he's a he's a furniture maker was, um, and he wrote a, he is quite possibly and this, this is specialty. He's quite possibly one of the preeminent theoreticians on the theory of craft and okay. and, mm. and handmade uh, uh, sort of hand making workmanship. And uh, one of his books, he outlined a sort of framework for thinking about what is makes handmade craft yeah. unique versus all of the other methods. Yeah. And that he presented this that in the craft because it's based entirely on the skill of the hand of the of the maker. Mm. It is a workmanship of risk, as in your uh, there's uh, there's something that can go wrong at any point of time because the pro, the pro, product is dictated entirely by a single individual's level of skill sure while the all of the other systems are workmanship of certainty because the system is is what what dictates the product yeah. as in you have a a series of components that are built separately and assembled yeah and what happens is that when something goes wrong, the component gets discarded and replaced with another p- component. So yep. the the overall risk for the production is very little. Yep. So uh, uh, in the way that Dem- uh, that Deming, which is a, um, uh, an, uh, an organizational theorist, mm-hmm. I quoted, talks, he referred to it as his ninety five five percent rule, as in in a in in a system where they uh, where we're talking about the workmanship of certainty, which is yep. a system of production that's used everywhere. Ninety-five um, percent of the of the performance variation will come from the system itself, and only five percent from the individuals. Right. Mm. And if you switch back to craftsmanship and handmade yeah. products, it's the other way around. Okay. Because the 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 skill of the individual dictates the quality of the product, and, and almost entirely, and the tools um, are sort of uh, are, 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 are sort of only five percent of it. And in many cases, these people make their own tools. They end up sort of, or even cust- or, or they buy them and yeah. they customize their own tools. They adjust them. So the problem, uh, the problem is with um, publishing is that they have the romantic ideals of handmade goods, mm-hmm. and they have the sort of they, they see themselves as having the same sort of social, cultural, and emotional value as a handmade good. But they are a mass manufacturing process. They are a system of producing a good. Yeah. And you cannot change the good that is the outcome of that system without completely changing the system. That's why we have ebooks, because ebooks are a digital product that is, has been constrained 
to match the production system that pre-exists in publishing. So the only way that they can actually do something interesting with digital is build a completely new system, a system from scratch. And that is essentially equal to building a new, a new organisation, a new company from scratch. From okay. scratch. So for, by that analogy, I'm just trying to analogise this because it seems to be fun, is that <laughs> the ebook is a Sainsbury's muffin. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's taking bakery and systemat... Uh, well... But no, the printed book is the same as Muffin as well. Yeah. Just, this is all... It's all... And, it's, and, and the artisan book, the, the boutique publisher, is trying to do the exquisite cake that you will yeah. buy and you'll pay an awful lot more for. Yeah, and also... And that's actually the model that... Mm. Yeah, but, uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the model is that... Let's just put it this way, in that if you have a production system that's designed for muffins... Mm. Yeah. But you want to actually get into the business of selling beef... Yeah, you need to build a completely different set of production of uh, production systems for right. make for working with beef because you can't use a muffin maker to, to make make, uh, make decent beef. No, you can't. It's a completely no, it's different a completely thing. different thing. Yeah, and so and my argument is that uh, which not everybody will uh, uh, agree with. A lot of people yeah. disagree with is that digital media is different enough from the uh, from the printed book. Stay with muffins. It's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, in that it require that uh, that digital media to to, for, to be to do to properly leverage it as a product to yeah. properly build a product that is um reliable uh, performs uh, pr- performs in a predictable manner and therefore results in predictable revenue in the long term yeah. you have to build a completely new system that's geared for that from yeah. the start and the, the, that's where infrastructure comes into it because right. mm. system is infrastructure it's a combination of two tools infrastructure and people Okay, mm. if that makes sense, it's sort of yes, yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's something we need to return to and kind of unpick and and refocus without focusing on cake too much. Um, because we just had lunch, and I may maybe still hungry. Um, well, I, I know, I, I know what, what I'm getting uh, uh, later on. I'm probably going to go to a coffee shop and get myself a muffin. <laughs> yeah, this is a muffin. Okay, I've, I've planted this. This is subliminal advertising, mm. and we planted the thought that cake is good and cake is good for you. Right. Anyway, sorry, let's back to it. So. Where we finished was print and digital and, and, and perceptions of how digital might be seen by print in kind of in a print paradigm environment. Mm. And actually from a publishing point of view, how you then how you work with that and how you unlock that and where do you put your digital product. And the other way of starting it is a, because a lot of these conversations begin with something on Twitter that we go back and forth, was a sense about books as furniture versus books as media. Yeah. And actually, is that a way of approaching the problem in a more interesting way? Mm. I mean, it sort, of, it sort of, from my perspective, that highlights the fundamental differences between the two. Yeah. Mm. As in, sort of, um, but it's, it's, it's like the same thing with, um, um, sort of, it is the, it is one of those things that make, makes, it, it's a, I'll let me start again. Mm. Um, whenever there's a new uh, new medium that enters the field, yep. um, we've talked about this before. That what it tends to do is that each medium tends to have its strengths and focus on on or has certain capabilities that it lends itself to more than others. Mm-hmm. And uh, if that those capabilities have a crossover with the pre-existing medium, yeah. What happens is that the cheaper, a cheaper, more effective one that's more easy to distribute displaces that section of the pre-existing medium. Yeah. But that does not replace the entirety of the old medium because the old medium is larger than that. They or, or, or pre-existing media tend to always be super, sort of. They're, 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 there's there's no usually no one-to-one replacement. Because if there were, then it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a new thing. It would just be an evolution. It'd be of the evolution old thing. of the old thing. Yeah. And the thing, a thing that happens uh, for it happened with. Um, um, uh, you know, radio. A uh, radio was uh, uh, going over to um, um, movies and then TV. Yeah. In that, you see that all of these these three these three media they they did not replace each other, but they displaced part of it. Uh, sort of narrative radio became it became less important. It became more uh, more a part of the now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the just uh, 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 the constantly live experience. Yeah. Films uh, started to become more and more these sort of um, la- uh, sort of performances uh, like yeah. uh, spectacles um tv is, uh, 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 then uh, then has been taking on the role of the ongoing uh, ongoing narrative or the yeah. interconnected narrative yeah and, and it's sort of the same thing seems to be happening with print as in 
the digital and uh, has entered and they've taken over they they're they're it, digital is manifestly better at the media part of print as in getting you know, getting text from point a to point b yeah. mm. effectively and yeah, you know, in a, as large a scale as possible, but that leaves the part of print that is the physical qualities, the yeah. the printer's furniture, and that still has value. And it's sort of, it's, it's, I think it's extremely misguided to dismiss the value of furniture. Or, of, or uh, when I say furniture, I mean the value of of print as a physical displayed object that is appreciated by you as a, uh, and your community and your friends. And has a set of affordances that are related to its physicality. Yeah. To, to, uh, to its, its, its transferability, to its possession, to, to we've done this before, kind of. Yeah, what are the, what are the memory aspect and, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and the, uh, it, it is very short-sighted to dismiss the value of that. And, yeah. Because, yeah. and it's also very uh, short-sighted to dismiss, dismiss that as shallow because it's anything but. It's, mm. it, uh, the, the physicality of print is the part of print that has the longest history because if you look yeah. at the actual texts, the, the kinds yeah. of books mm. people have written, they've varied so much over the years. We talked about people who have gone from uh, writing down, um, uh, sort of, if you look at the plays that were written in, uh, sort of written down in, uh, in ancient Greece and the, the speeches and the uh, talks of, of, uh, in Rome, the poetry over ages, is that the, the actual contents of books, the, book, the media components of books has been in constant Evolution, yeah. a constant change. But the form, the form has been certainly a, a for the last five hundred years has been pretty much fixed. And uh, and even even before that, it has a even though the, the a print had a, a sort of the mechanized print is a, a, a sort of is a younger medium. It, yeah. It's it it comes from a, a from a lineage. It does that mm. that stretches back into uh, back into the age. So that is not shallow. That is no. something. Mm. And but a, a sort of uh, and I think it's interesting that. People are starting to look at that as a core part of Prince value proposition, especially in terms of bookstores. Yeah. Because um, it's interesting that sort of um, um, what, uh, you know the the thing about stores and books is that books are a nice product actually to display. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it, it's it ties back to the reason why Amazon actually started. The, the, the reason why I first chose books is because books are rectangular. They they. Jeff Bezos had this idea that of doing basically online e-commerce because it 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 was a logical thing to do with uh, or, or with the web, and the but a large part of the, or, or, it wasn't the only reason, but a large part of the reason why I chose books is that a they're easy to package and ship, yeah. they're rectangular, they're, so they're easy to store in box, box. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, he, uh, to start off with, he managed to uh, managed to negotiate a drop shipping con- uh, contract with one distributors so that he could offload the majority of the of the orders to uh, to somebody else. Right, but the uh, books are a really uh, as a, from the perspective of a physical product, they're actually a really efficient one. Yeah, mm. um, and it's sort of um, uh, sort of so. It's interesting to see that how that is being emphasised, especially in the sort of if you look at the growth or, or sort of the growth of Waterstones in the UK, and how they've managed to still not profit in profit. Uh, by the way, it's sort of mm. this this massive success story for. Uh, for the publishing industry, still losing money. <laughs> the massive success story appears to be the only one of the of the large group that haven't gone bust or gone under in the last few years. Mm. Yeah, but they're still losing money. They're still losing money. Foils, except yeah. Well, sort of. Um, um, but yeah, it's um, but it's uh, interesting. The part of that is that they they they're they're explicitly sort of appealing to the sort of emotional ownership value of books and other uh, other yeah. retailers that seem to have been having some success. But they're, they're sort of uh, that. Just really then introducing the, to introduce another question is that doesn't this just mean that the pro- two products, the digital book or digital yeah. media, yeah. and the printed media will just diverge more because they're obviously now you can obviously see that the best use of print and the best use of media are addressing two different use cases. Yes. Mm. So. That means two different markets, and that means yep. two different needs, and that means two different evolutions. That 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 almost certainly means divergence. Well, yeah, and, and and coming back to the root the root of it, which I know we've touched on an awful lot before. If if we want a model, um, and Peter Mayer is very good on this, if we want a model that 
ascribes a different set of values and different set of affordances to a digital product. Yeah. So not just the product itself, not just the, the, the e-book, and, and I'm, I've said this before, as a kind of facsimile, as a parody of a book. Yeah. As something that is hived up in part of the production process, but that actually that considers not only its form, but also how it's displayed, how it's accessed, the, the metadata it attaches, the way we annotate it, the way we think about those things mm. in a properly digital manner that's not a... And when and this is where Mayer is incredibly good that when you when you pull apart the the way in which and we're starting my study here so we pull apart the way these bookshelves work yeah um, and there are maybe two or three hundred books in these bookshelves and I kind of know where everything is and I kind of know things by association by there are books I I value I don't value by the things I've not read there's a shelf there that is the vaguely to be read thing but actually most of it's to be read <laughs> um, but there is a completely the trouble with the Kindle app and the Kindle model is that it, it it doesn't. It doesn't address any of those affordances. Any of those affordances in terms of how we think of books and how we think spatially mm. about books and who think spatially about a library or a bookstore in that yeah. respect and give us a way to map those not in an equivalent manner because the equivalence is not the point really here, but in a manner that reflects how we might use digital media and how it might be a different value added proposition, a different way of thinking about these things. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, suggests that, yes, we should be looking at a divergence, but a proper divergence mm. rather than just at the moment we've got a divergence in market, yeah. that one is shifting away from the other, but actually they're selling the same thing, fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, it, the uh, sort of... Uh, I think, actually, the limitations of the Kindle that people have complained about extensively, especially if you're interested in digital media, because it's, it's it has essentially no features. Yeah. Uh, I think that's actually intentional on, on their part, because the fewer features you have, and the platform, the cheaper it is to produce. Yes. That means you can. That mean. Uh, that means that the um, the gra- the uh, uh, sort of uh, there's a more level playing field between self-publishers and large organisations because there's a limit to the overshooting of quality that that a large organisation that it can do because they yeah. cannot really differentiate themselves from the uh, the ebook output of the self-publisher. Yeah. So. I think that the 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 sort of flat uh, level of features and quality that the Kindle has, and the fact that the whenever they add a feature, it mm-hmm. tends to be uh, a platform wide feature that they 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 leverage them themselves through machine learning and and uh, natural language parsing. Yeah, that that is uh, they, they do that specifically because they do not want to give large orders an advantage because they want the market to be modular, built off really really small self contained units. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes they're uh, uh, most successful self-publishers are an organisation. They are not yeah. just a self-publisher. They are, they are the the writer plus the Also, his group of freelancers. His his freelance editor, freelance de- cover yeah. designer. Mm. So it, the core difference between um, the Kindle market and and for example the print market is that in the Kindle market the uh, that you have organisations where the author is integration point. Yeah. But in the print markets you have organization where the basically the the um the the retail uh, sort of the uh, well, you have a publishing representative as the integration point yeah mm-hmm. so um it's it's basically amazon decided that they don't want to deal with publishers they'd rather deal with with the author directly and have everything else hang off from there yeah mm. uh, and i think that's what driving the low feature point but the problem with that even though it's very the strategically the right thing for them to do uh, when they're competing with with print publishing mm. and print oriented publishers, it leaves, in my view, the Kindle and the entire ebook ecosystem because ePub is just basically copying the Kindle. Yeah. The, mm. the entire point of of of, of almost everything ePub is basically just to re-implement either either um, Adobe's um, ebook infrastructure or uh, Amazon's ebook yeah. infrastructure. Mm. There's no there's no new going on there. Yeah. Um, not to speak of, um, or when they do something new, it's it, they're, they're literally sometimes just re-implementing PDFs using HTML, which drives me batty. But anyway, um, what this does is it leaves the entire ebook ecosystem open to competition from other digital media, for, from yeah. apps mm. and websites, yeah. because they're not bound by that same dynamic, because mm. they, they can easily deliver all of the features and try to 
uh, basically a website, a website or an app can deliver many more features than a, kind, a Kindle. Yeah. Um, and it has the added benefit, if you look at, look at it from uh, from a digital media perspective, is that publishers are bad at it too. So you're not... Uh, yeah. Mm. You know, like, the, like the Kindle, you're, you're, uh, the publishers don't have, a, uh, don't have an inherent advantage like they do in print. Mm -hmm. But the downside, obviously, is that it tends to be... Uh, it's... Digital media is not easy. I mean, this is one of those, one of those no. things that... It's my, sort of when you talk about it, it's inherently a complex process and it's a young field. But I don't think that doesn't make it easy. I think this is this is one of the the myths about digital as as a way of sorry digital as a way of looking at a form digital as a way of looking at what you do and how do you create for that thing. Actually, it is easy. It's elegantly easy, but you've got to think outside of what you do ordinarily. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to change you've got to change your perspective. The um, <sighs> The ground has to slope upward, and, yeah. and you're walking up a wall rather than along a wall. And you've got to think about your audience in a different way, and think about how those things kind of unpack in a different way. Actually, the way you think about content for digital is surprisingly easy. And the, we've talked before about Buzz, Buzzfeeder in the last podcast. There are examples of companies out there who who make a small shift away from what you might see as an orthodox conventional model for what they do, mm. and make that very successful. But they're very conscious of that shift. I mean, for, uh, an example of this would be, um, did you read about that uh, Williams um, uh, spinning matter off from yeah. uh, Medium? Yes. Mm. And if you read the, uh, read there, uh, their brief is to be agnostic of platforms. Yes. Mm. So it's a, it basically harkens back to the dichotomy that that was mentioned in the last podcast which I, you see everywhere online mm. is that you have um audience a sort of um, a, a sort of audience a, a content creator a, 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 an organization for content creators mm -hmm. who are agnostic about the specifics of the audience platform yeah. mm -hmm. and you have the audience platforms which are kind of agnostic about the content creators but they they want want them there just don't don't care how or or, 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 yeah. or where just that they come on on the terms that they can mutually agree on yeah and it's sort of uh, the the there's a split before the publisher was the bridge between the two mm -hmm. and now what we're having is that the only bridge between the two are basically open APIs yeah mm. in that um, the problem that the 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 competitive strength, for example, that Facebook has has nothing to do with the proprietary nature of how you get content into there. Yeah. Because the, the uh, their instant articles um, is based on RSS and HTML. There's nothing proprietary about the technology that they're using, but they are have built up this audience aggregation audience that they've and they control the terms yep. by which you engage with them. Mm. And um, that, 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 because the value comes directly, uh, comes from the uh, comes from the audience. They then are the mediators of value to the content creators, but they do so generally on modular API-based terms rather than uh, on business relationships, like you do uh, do in the sort of with physical media. Yeah. And this means that you uh, sort of uh, sort of if you're interested in creating content. You're, you're generally better off doing what Buzzfield and Matter does is that you, you try and build it with the mind of trying to spread it as far and as wide as possible mm -hmm. and not tie yourself to a single platform, which is kind of why I think that, why I think that a lot of the, um, a lot of, a lot of what is standard practice now with self-publishers is, misguided in the long term because they are tying themselves not just to Amazon they're tying themselves to a single content form mm. I think it's well, more interesting to see the, the, the there you see writers now who are trying to spread out and have started posting short stories uh, short stories to medium and other platforms mm. and trying to build up Patreon revenue to yeah. um, so as a sort of complement to, to or, Kindle or, yeah or even building the audience prior to a Patreon because I mean there are, yeah. there are, there are writers Jonathan Carroll is a really interesting example mm. here of someone who has absolutely has an audience and I have no idea whether Jonathan Carroll makes an income from mm. writing oh sorry I've no idea whether the income that Jonathan Carroll makes from writing is enough to support his lifestyle living in Vienna. Yeah. I don't know whether he still teaches, whether there's still another thing going on there, whether how that works. But actually what he does, partly because he's a writer who writes, he writes regularly. And there's, a, mm. there's every couple of days, there's a very short piece, very provocative, very Carolian, 
um, on Medium that's tr- posted to Twitter and Facebook. That, that I, they're beautiful. They're little snippets of the way Jonathan Carroll sees the world, and they are astonishingly good. <laughs> and Jonathan Carroll is one of those authors I would happily pay five quid a month yeah, as yeah. a Patreon thing to get access to those, to feel that like you're part of this. But you're right, it's... it's for a writer, for a writer operating in this space, it's finding, it's understanding the landscape enough that it doesn't feel complicated, that you, there's a way of getting your stuff out there, there's a way of writing within that space, mm. taking charge of what you do. And I'm just looking I mean, now at... Writing is always an incredibly bad career choice. Just well, want to yeah, make that clear. Yes. Yeah. It, is, it, it yeah. doesn't mm. really matter, it doesn't matter whether it was in print or in uh, sort of digital media, just... Mm. Generally speaking, if if you actually want to actually have a sort of healthy career and and paying a mortgage and yeah. a large family and what whatnot, become a baker. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, so writing is is not the most practical choice. But we're talking no. about basically sort of mitigating the impracticalities of the of the <laughs> of of, um, uh, of that career. But I think the other thing we're doing, and this 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 comes back to other things that are on my mind generally at the moment, are that we're. We're, we're after changing the way in which write, potential writers see their career and potential mm. writers see them, their entry into that. So one thing we covered last time was publishing's approach, as we see it, as you and I see it, to writers and writers placed in their ecosystem. Yeah, and very as in they really don't like paying them anything. They really don't pay them anything. <laughs> they're bottom of the heap. They're paid less than the people answering the telephones who do a brilliant job. And, and, and that seems to be fundamentally wrong. And maybe there is something there about, if not the current generation of writers, but the next generation of writers and writers who are coming through, of seeing ways into writing and ways into having a voice that are completely differentiated from a conventional publishing model and a conventional model and trying to find those platforms that exist outside of that and making those content. Well, it's sort of... There's two ways to think about this, is that writing as a career is always a horrible, horrible, horrible choice. And yes. the, and nothing digital media has, has or will introduce will fundamentally change that. It no. might mitigate it, but it won't fundamentally change that. But True. this is a golden age for writing as a vocation. Yes. Because if, if, if you're writing for some other reason than paying your rent and as work, if your writing is motivated by a desire to communicate yep. and communicate our ideas, this is the absolute best time to be a writer with, uh, with that mind. Because the, the potential there, potential for reach and potential for in, innovation and ideas and trying new things is just... It, you have to really start reaching uh, reaching far back to find uh, a sort of a, a period that income's close. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a more interesting landscape. And it, this is just so. So it's sort of if you manage to differentiate between the two, um, and if you uh, sort of if you focus on writing as a vocation, and if you focus uh, if you if your goal is to get the get the ideas out, then mm. also by definition you do not require a publisher because yeah. if you're going to earn money on your vocation. It's always going to be secondary income stream, and yeah. if uh, and if that's the case, you might as well just focus on your autonomy and having control yeah. over your voice. Yeah, and the way that publishers have been treating authors, they have been pushing authors to becoming more of a, as in this is a vocation, this is some. Uh, 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 something you you uh, 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 this is something you live for, not mm. work for. Uh, it's yeah. not work. Uh, this is not a job. Um, because they've been pushing authors that way for so long by basically slowly, slowly, uh, sl- uh, slowly paying them less and less. Mm. Okay? And, uh, there's no doubt that every survey that I've ever seen that uh, uh, shows that uh, authors have been earning less and less over the past twenty years. And the way that publishers have have been pushing the uh, the sort of change of context for authors, they have been making themselves irrelevant for those authors because mm. if if you're not going to earn any money. You yeah. don't need a publisher because the the entire point and purpose of a publisher is to turn a, a manuscript into yeah. revenue. The potential, of, yeah, to, to see the potential in what you do and to to bring some money in down the stream and to do things that you can't do with it. Yeah, well, yeah. So, yeah. given the fact the publisher has to pay pay their own staff, yeah, they're, they're, mm. you, you, they're, they're, yes. the only purpose of a publisher is to basically take a manuscript and turn it into revenue. It's, yeah. Otherwise, they won't be able to pay you know the editors and the executives and the all the fancy sure. people in the big towers in London Book Fair and all that. You know, it's sort of um, uh, sort of it's there. Uh, there are very few publishers that are uh, that are run on a not-for-profit basis. So this is very true. They, yes. Sort mm. of uh, once they remove the profit motive for their foundation labour, 
then they start compromising their own very existence. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's sort of, I, I don't see a way for them out of that hole in the long term unless they try and figure out new ways of bringing more money to authors. And that, that's, the only count, uh, that's the only counterweight they have to both self-publishing and publishing, you know, so, uh, and, and basically uh, pu- uh, pu- uh, publishing your own writing for free online mm. is basically, you know, we are here to make sure you can earn money on your writing. Yeah. And if they cannot say that... What use are they? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of, but yeah, they're, they're, sort of, they're think, a packaging organisation that puts stuff out there. But actually, mm, yeah, if you're not returning anything to a process, a um, process. We, we, yeah. I think we diverged a bit from the um, whole, we did um, um, dichotomy of the physicality versus uh, versus did. Um, um, di- uh, sort of ephemera, uh, the sort of non physicality of digital. And I guess one thing I want to, to just to bring back to that one of the things because I, I scribbled a set of notes at the end of the last podcast of things that I thought might be interesting for this one was one the last one I put down was value. Mm. was how do we value something digital? How do we value something that is fundamentally ephemeral, that fundamentally exists, that, that we can't display on a shelf, that we yeah. don't have that kind of, that similar kind of showing-off display, uh, peacock-plumage relationship with, that actually only exists within the device in your hand? I mean, is, yeah. is, is that a problem that we're never going to get beyond? Is that something we can't figure out? Well, I think that there are... Let me see. I can think of... There are two angles on that that I can think of sort of quickly. Mm. The first one is something I, me- I mentioned. We, I've mentioned in previous podcasts, which is that if you are, if you, if you're, if what you're doing is about delivering value for professionals or businesses, yeah, they can measure that in objective terms, as in this is how much <laughs> this is how much work you save by sure. teaching us this. Yes, mm. and uh, and you can chance them. You can basically do value based pricing yeah. in that context. Yeah. But the, that's offering a service rather yeah. than a product. And, uh, yeah, but uh, sort of, uh, sort of, the service becomes a product. But essentially, all all of the media uh, media that you create becomes a service that you package up into something yes. you sell. It's like Safari Online, yeah, okay. Lynda dot com, yeah. and you basically take what used to be standalone uh, media artifacts and you turn yeah. it into a service that you sell to businesses. Yes. This is you just subscribe to this, and you have this value for your for your staff. So yep. For constant re-education uh, and training, that you can, and they can measure that, and, and basically everybody's happy, but it's not really exciting. <laughs> no, sure, no. that's that's one angle. We've yeah. covered that one quite extensively in the past, and it's not really interesting because it's it's really well known. I yeah. mean, it's sort of it's well explored, and we all know that if we want to, if if we if we want a steady paycheck in this in in this world. That's that. Uh, that's probably that the, way way yeah. the way to go. The interesting yeah. way to look at, though, is is wh- whether there are angles in terms of the whole, where the value is more uh, that uh, value seen by the buyer, uh, mm-hmm. which is usually consumer, is more emotional, uh, yeah. and more sort of, uh, sort of, you know, combined emotional, cultural, entertainment value. How that works, and I actually think that there's only really one model there. And the publishers, it's a model that publishers have explicitly rejected. Cool. And that is uh, subscription. Right. Mm-hmm. It's better than the necklace model. I mean, it, it, it is obvious that if you look at that, uh, that if you look at from, a, a, uh, from uh, the way that the consumer is heading mm-hmm. in music, in video, um, uh, sort of, and even in, in comics to, uh, to, a, uh, to mm-hmm. an extent. Is going is subscription oriented. People, uh, consumers are quite willing to say, "I'll pay this amount of money, mm-hmm. and I'll have access to a library of of stuff." Yeah, it doesn't have to be all of the stuff. No, but it has to be enough uh, of the stuff for me to enjoy and pick, th- but it, pick but it, things. But it differentiates me from the person who hasn't got access to it. Yeah, and, and it, yeah, mm. and it, it's just they're valuing the ease of access to a, a collection of media. Yeah, because that is something that they can concretely evaluate. It's like the sort of um, the existence of Netflix. I can. Yeah. It's obvious to me that there it's worth the subscription because just because of 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 the ease of use of filling an evening, but it's it's the value of selling an individual digital artifact is a lot harder to for uh, to you know I'm, I'd consider myself a you know fairly clued up consumer of yeah. digital media, but. I spend uh, most of the money I spend on digital media is spent on subscription Netflix Amazon Prime. Yeah, Marvel Unlimited uh, on the comic side, mm-hmm. 
Um, and you know the the dollar amount of what I spend there is more than uh, is more than the dollar amount I spent on buying things individually, and the uh, the part where where I'm buying things individually has been going down steadily because. Mm-hmm. It's generally a pain in the ass. Expensive, and you you don't get. I don't. I don't feel that I get the value corresponding to the price I pay for a digital file that some DRM thing might then just you know turn no, it, evaporate think, into dust. I so I think subscription is the only only long term value proposition that consumers will buy in, and publishers in way the way they dealt with Oyster. Explicitly yeah. rejected that as a viable path to the future, which means that I don't think they have a viable path to the future in terms of digital business models. Okay, but that, that's obviously a controversial opinion because I, I don't think anybody in in publishing agrees with me on that one. <laughs> because actually, it's 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 quite yes, it's a little disarming and it's a little negative. But I suppose what that reflects from what you're saying is that one. One, it, it reflects the ultimate truth that we don't own an ebook. We don't own the file. We don't own anything. Yeah. We don't own anything that kind of it's downloaded. It can be taken away from us, and it's gone. And if we lose it, we've got no recompense to kind of come back to it. Like the whole Nook Sainsbury's transition would apparently evaporated a large part of the Nook's catalogue. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, completely. In the last few weeks, yeah. Um, that you know, you, if you don't upgrade your Kindle, it'll be off the internet t- today, tomorrow, whatever else it might be, which is possibly less of, less of an issue than is being reported. But right. mine actually bricked when I tried to do the up- upgrades a week ago. So oh, really? okay. it's an issue. It's an issue. Okay, it's definitely <laughs> an issue. Which will yes, we'll watch the But actually, what you're saying in terms of subscription is it reflects one. One, it reflects the way you operate. It's the way you live. Yeah. So you, you'd rather you you can see the value in that, and you can see the value from a media producer and media distributor. Owning the rights to a number of things, yeah, you, but that's that's worth your twelve quid a month of Netflix. It's worth whatever it might be to Amazon Prime, and it's worth that on a going forward basis because it's entertainment and it fills the media product's role as filling your time and giving yeah. you some brain food or entertainment or and, and, popcorn. And whatever things might be, and mm. even though even though media artifacts aren't really commodities, they are slightly commodified in that you know if if uh, if. If I want to see something that is like a uh, a mystery and yeah. uh, and you know to uh, be branded over, I can find something that will fulfil that need on Netflix or Amazon Prime, and if it isn't on there, I uh, generally speaking it has to be really remarkable for me mm. to go out and seek it out on its sure. own. Um, it's just the sort of ease of access trumps the sort of uh, 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 trumps the the uniqueness of each pro- uh, product the uh, sort of uh, I, yeah. guess, I guess the reason for me identifying that one is I'm wondering how that model maps onto something like the Friends of the Royal Academy yeah yeah. so the Royal Academy art institution in central London and as a result of a number of things one it's longevity one it's its position in the arts landscape and its site and its space host a number of very high profile shows every year mm. now if you are a friend of the ra you have free access you yeah can come in you come and go as you like if you're not you're paying your 12 quid your 15 quid whatever it might be and if you're a friend and it seems to be that's without if Publishing is going to reject the oyster model and reject that kind mm. of fundamental. Okay, we, we will offer the whole thing. Maybe maybe the middle ground is something more akin to Friends of the RA that you, you're paying something that gives you access and you get a set of things as part of that that other well, people it, don't get. It's sort of yeah, all, but all the, the subscription model for. definitely scales down. I mean, yeah. for, mm. one of the so, as I said, one of the I, I, I like this. I like I, one of the subscriptions I've got uh, got um, is Thrillbent, which is uh, right. uh, they're a small comics company and they have. A mixture of new titles and old titles, like for mm-hmm. example, they're serializing *Strangers in um, Paradise*. All right, Terry Um uh, yeah. So they basically went on, you know, basically asked them, "You've got this entire thing, and uh, if we yeah. if we serialize it on our on, on our service, <coughs> you, we pay you, you know, we've got this 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 portion of the subscription fee, like a, t- a tiny bit of it. We can spend that on 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 this sort of stuff, yeah, and we mm-hmm. can pay a bit of that to you every month for that. And basically, it, it scales down as well because it, on, on the smaller when you have smaller subscription services, you need to have more more specific and niche oriented, unique products. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it, it it comes down to uh, it, it comes down to the same thing from the perspective of the consumers that the value proposition is is understandable in similar terms. In that yeah. I'm interested in this these sort of things, I'd like to have access to it without having to worry about, you know. 
buying or acquiring it on a, on a, on an episode by episode so or basis. case by case basis, basis. Yeah. Mm. and it sort of removes that part of the equation for it's the convenient. consumer. Mm. But the problem that but the, 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 I had this debate with with publishers before, and the reason why they reject the subscription model isn't specifically the oyster model uh, of cattle of um, um, of uh, sort of aggregating everything. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a huge mistake of oyster to try and actually have everything. They should have started with um, a set of narrow niches um, uh, 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 niches and grown up from there because so that's more easily... Starting with one genre, starting with crime yeah. fiction, and starting with something else. Or, yeah, so, because that, that's, that's, yeah. that's much more easy, uh, easy to market, but mm. to, it's a much clearer value proposition to the mm. buyer and to the publisher. It would have been... But anyway, they didn't, so it doesn't matter. But the, the problem that publishers, as, as far as I understand it, I might, might be misrepresenting their argument, but... In that they, a lot of publishers think that subscription inherently devalues the val uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the book and right. the each title because uh, the, uh, uh, so that because it it, it has it it, tend, it changes a variable sum market that can yeah. vary from month to month to a fixed sum market. Yeah. You uh, you you implicitly reduce the value of each each book uh, of each book yeah. and the money that goes to the author. Sure. And I think that's true. I think that's entirely a yeah. valid true uh, 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 true observation. I think it's irrelevant because that's. I think in the long term that's going to be the only thing uh, your only option. It's like. One ship is sinking, the other one is not. It yeah. doesn't matter if the other one is, is crappier, has fewer toilet facilities, and there's actually a worse place to be. Not, okay, You'd I'm, rather be there than having to But I'm not even sure that metaphor really holds, because it's not even true that the other one has crappier toilet facilities and is sinking, and is, it's just a different sort of ship. It's yeah. going to take you yeah. in a different direction. It's, it's you know... And you need to read. Trains, yeah, it's, we've gone from trains to ships to moon shops and rockets. To cake to bakery. Um, but I think... One of the things that, that would one that cuts through that completely is, is to look at Netflix's revenues and look at Amazon Prime's revenues and look at the mm. way that that's that is in, is used to fund the next thing and the next thing and the next yeah. thing and to grow in that environment and that surely for publishers should be a wake up call. Is this is a way of, of of opening that out? And the other way is it seems to me one of the problems that publishing has articulated for quite some time is a problem with imprints. Yeah. And a problem with the value of an imprint, and with very, very few exceptions. I'm not sure the general public have any clue or give a shit. I've who's been working publishing for three years, and I have no idea. No, but who's, who's publishing what? Why this is that? What's um, what's the value of any one particular thing? There are there's a generation of readers who will remember older imprints that have been bought up and still exist. Yeah, Havel Secker headline who still operate in a certain way, but actually. And maybe there's then a, a, a set of specifically genre savvy readers who do recognise what's an online yeah. book, what's a glance book, what operates in that one. But the vast middle ground really don't care. Yeah. And maybe that 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 the, the, trying to solve the problem of how do you recognise the value in imprints, which appears to be that you know you, as was famously remarked by somebody who we we're both very you know, familiar with in the last few weeks, that you know if um, the offer to anybody entering a publishing as an intern ought to be you can start your own imprint and, <laughs> and save you. <laughs> God bless him, that was funny. Um, but actually to behave like Netflix, to behave like an Amazon Prime, to operate in a way that... Ref- that, that and there's this a much bigger conversation here about the analogy between DVD box sets and yeah. subscription services and the way those things operate and how we see value. Because one of the, one of the, kind of the, the, the concurrent conversations about American television is how much it's become novelised, is how much the yeah. wire is usually held up as the example of it as TV, TV series, long form TV series behaving like a novel, behaving like an episodic structure and allowing that kind of sequential thing yeah. and that arc to operate and that is through DVD box sets and the TiVo and a whole set of things but actually if you want an imprint, behave set up an imprint that behaves like a subscription service, Yeah, that acquires and that pushes things out and that, that offers something completely different, that doesn't just offer the book or the digital book but offers something that is fundamentally experimental yeah. fundamentally new to what you're doing that, that 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 seems to be a way of testing water and testing to where we were last time testing a different kind of infrastructure into yeah. how you operate rather than just repeating what's gone on before and, and also, hoping someone notices. I mean sort of irrespective of of whether it devalues an individual individual title or not if you are have any sort of training in management or business models recurring revenue is gold 
Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like oh, it's 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 sort of a recur- recurring revenue for a a a product that it has a marginal cost of zero, basically a digital product. Yeah. Um, it's like it's what it's what you want. It's it's the, it, it's the it's 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 the ideal for uh, for uh, for how for what you'd want to build a business around. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's still cost similar, obviously, but it, it's like it, it's a. It, it is an ideal business to run. It, it, it's, it's, it's because it, it, allow, it allows you to plan cash flow. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and, the, and, the, and having a, a digital product, which means means that the overhead is generally going to be in terms of uh, sort of capital expenditure, as in building building the software and services and 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 that side of uh, side yeah. of things. And those, you know, in terms of accounting, those are actually that's a favorable that's a favorable kind of infrastructure rather than the um, but anyway, it's just what, what you want is you, you want recurring revenue. It's, it's recurring it, revenue is good. It's and, what you want. And, recur- and seeing digital as a source of recurring revenue seems to be a way of approaching digital in a diff- in a way that's different than just you can still ape the. Okay, let's, let's, let's take this in stages. Peter Mayo's is not going to be happy about this, but let's take it in stages and not reinvent the entire ecosystem and the entire structure. Be transitional and do be yeah. transitional. Do yeah. something that says, okay, our, our digital offering to a market is going to operate in this way, and it's going to be different from our print offering because we're not going to expect you to buy everything for nine ninety nine. It cuts. Okay, the one advantage is it cuts that entire argument about the value of an ebook against, which mm. dominates every bloody below the line. Mm. Column yeah, in it just anything. it just pushes that to it pushes that entire debate off the table. Yeah, so no, if you want if, if you want to operate digitally, this is how we're going to sell your product. This is mm-hmm. how we're going to you're going to subscribe to this. You're going to get value from this, and this is how we're going to run. If you still want the print thing because that's our production process, you still buy the print thing, and that for me seems to be again we're back to just experiments in more interesting ways of approaching your market and approaching your audience. This is the reason why Pelican Books was such a huge, huge missed opportunity. They basically built the entire infrastructure. I don't have um, the... Um, the, uh, the Oh, yeah, it's... Um, um, the problem with... Um, um, yeah, I was talking about Pelican Books. The, uh, yeah, I'm still kind of just in, thinking about it. Uh, thinking back about it, I'm still kind of in shock about how much of a missed opportunity it was. They built the infrastructure. They built the interface. They built everything, or, or every single component of a functional, working, subscription-based website. Mm-hmm. And then they charged for each title uh, on a title-by-title basis uh, as if they were selling an ebook. <sighs> and it's like... They, they literally they had every have everything in place for Pelican Books to just say, you know, char- uh, pay us x amount of uh, of money per year. Mm. We'll give you these Pelican Books, and we'll give you. Pro- we'll see what other uh, other. And it, you know, if if they have a larger subscription base, they can use that to acquire other books that are not necessarily published, but as part of the Pelican label, yep. just things that add value to the subscription, build the subscription base. Yeah, and you can you can use that to transition. Uh, sort an of, existing yeah, business, yeah, traditional mm. existing business away from um, our, our extremely print-oriented business model mm. towards uh, being an audience aggregator that is collecting an audience of paying subscribers and and to, you to, use that money to, to, to seek out products yeah. that will fulfil their needs. And paying subscribers to whom certainly within Pelican's offering, because Pelican is quite a distinct offer. Exactly, that works. You've got you 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 you're building on something existing. You're building on an existing thing that is different enough from. Everything else that they do, yeah, it operates in a certain way that has a set of values and a set of affordances and a set of things that its audience will come to, and they know what they're getting. And they have very specific yes. value proposition. Yes, and it just seems like in that respect, it's a completely missed opportunity. And it's sort of especially because it's uh, all the, on, on the other hand, they could switch to uh, to it whenever they want because, <laughs> like I said, they've got the entire thing there. They, they've got web based uh, web based books. They've got yeah. the they've got a um, um, a payment system. They've got you know it's sort of it's. Yeah, um, uh, there's a good chance that they're using a payment system like Stripe or something, and, yeah. and in which case, it's basically they're switching to a recurring system, uh, payment system. Would probably be like a cons- uh, hiring a consultant to do it for a weekend. But yeah, mm. I don't know. Well, maybe they're 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 almost certainly the problem with that with that is that to make that work, you would need a system behind it for. Both nurturing and building a subscriber base, and nurturing and building a catalogue for that subscriber base. Yeah. And if you don't have the system for that, if if the only input into the service would be the occasional Pelican book, which 
whose releases are timed based on the needs of the print retail market and not the need of the subscription market, yeah. the subscription service would languish. Yeah. Mm. So it would. It, yes. it, it's it's like it is. Even though we sort of it sort of from an outside perspective, it looks like a massive missed opportunity. If they don't have the systems in place internally to actually do it properly, yeah. It, it's, probably probably, it's not going to change. It's not succeed. Yeah. It's not going to change. So it probably would have sort of if they did, wouldn't have been able to do it properly with the systems in place. It probably would have been a bad idea to try. Sure. It just from the outside, it just looks awful. <laughs> it feels. Okay, this, is, this is maybe somewhere where we start to wrap up because I'm aware of time. Um, in that, one of the things that we didn't mention last time that we talked about over lunch was Julian Fellows' Belgravia. Yeah. Which is coming out next month, coming out in April as a I think a twelve-part serialized. Um, Dickensian serial fiction that kind of yeah. rolls out there, and that for me, obviously, it's being it's being done because there's a tie into Downton Abbey, which is the yeah. favourite of a number of middle class people that I happen to know. Um, although I've never seen an episode um, that operates on a certain way that will tie into that audience. And the thing that we talked about over lunch was that that may, that at the moment, as far as we can see, it doesn't appear to know whether it wants an e-book audience, whether it wants a digital audience, whether it wants an audience that comes from downtown. Mm. And it's, it, there's an awful lot of trusting the market or trusting yeah. something to find a market. But for me, it seems more that the... Okay, this is what I was getting to with that one. That adopting... There's a formal adoption that I've done in the past. We've looked at serial fiction. We've looked at kind of releasing mm. things over a number of days. But actually, the more interesting one is if you look back at how Dickens made his living yeah, and why he did it that way, and it wasn't about wanting to tell a story over a number of parts. It yeah. wasn't some romantic ideal about that's the way Dickens wrote. It's about money well, and subscribers and subscribers in magazines, subscribers in magazines, and in Dickens' case, owning the magazines as well, and yeah. the rights to those magazines, and knowing that you that if you if you construct your stories in a certain way, you will have readers coming back month or every yeah. two weeks or week and week and week and week. So people forget that Dickens was actually. A Pretty crap businessman. His bag magazines went bankrupt regular basis. He lost yeah. money on uh, he, the uh, Christmas. Uh, his uh, the story about Scrooge and uh, mm. he lost a substantial amount of money on that printing, even though it was the most popular uh, Christmas book because his pr the production values of his books were so high that he would lost money on every sale. Yeah. Um, he, it's like we're mimicking the business model of a man who manifestly did not know what he was doing. Completely, he was a good writer, but it, in terms of yeah. uh, uh, sort of in terms of running a business, this, this man didn't have a clue. And but why, why, why are we thinking this is a good idea? We're no. copying him, but, but, but we're copying him in service only, and we're not. I think what's interesting is nobody's really copying him in in trying to take that particular business model, that yeah. infrastructure yeah. model, and say, yeah. okay, well, we can do that much more yeah. efficiently now. We can and do it, that in a way that Dickens wasn't able to do. And it's sort of, I mean, uh, the, but my problem with Belgravia is basically that it is, it is assuming that if you build a, a, a... It is trying to build a complex system from scratch, <laughs> assuming that they know exactly what it's going to do and how it's going to work. As in, hmm. they they have not proven that there's demand for this. They yeah. have not proven that there's an audience for this. And they, they're going whole hog into building an entire thing without actually testing the market for this in the first place. Yeah. Um, the logical thing to do, uh, in my view, would have been to build, a, build this as a website first, test yeah. out... Uh, you know, this as a series of products and, and then iterate it and tweak it to see what you can do to to build a, a, a base of subscribers yeah. and and how you can, uh, what you can use as a funnel to turn casual readers into subscribers. And for that, you really need a website. You really need it to be a web-based product and not an app product because you cannot easily convert casual readers with an app. No, you can't. And the other thing, it, the other thing it requires you to do is to have faith in the medium and long term. Yeah. Rather than to say this is, and, and this is in a weird way, although it's it's not a moonshot, feels like a more moonshot oriented approach to a marketplace and saying we'll do this, it will be brilliant. It will, but actually, where where's what do you learn from that? What do you learn downstream yeah. from that? And where does that take you? It it the, it assumes it knows exactly what it's doing and what's going to work. Sure. Mm. Uh, and it's built a product. For that specific vision from the start, instead of assuming we don't know what what uh, how what works and and we don't know really how to uh, how to do this because nobody does this is a this is a a a, a young field yeah so the uh, sort of the uh, the building in exploration and ex and expanding from a small base mm -hmm. in a sort of um air, sort of co uh, sort of uh, in a exploratory way yeah. is the. It's actually the conservative thing to do. Yeah, it is the least risky, most conservative, most sort of 
you know, let, uh, uh, let, uh, let's not be too wild here, boys, yep. kind of mm-hmm. way of doing things. So from the perspective of somebody who actually works in the field, the, the way that publishers tend to uh, do things, they, they're actually, they look like risk seekers, mad uh, adrenaline fueled risk seekers <laughs> who keep doing the crazy extreme sports things in, uh, instead of going, uh, going for the step-by-step quiet house in the countryside kind of th- uh, yeah. kind of activities and this is so far from the own uh, the self-image that publishing has that I sometimes wonder if they realized that, that they their activities were actually more risky than what a lot of people in digital media are suggesting whether that would would change the way to do things or whether or whether it's just wouldn't work I don't know right. mm. well <laughs> I think that's pretty much uh, pretty much the sort of uh, where we've ended up on that one. I don't know. I don't know. But don't that, that, know. That's the point. The, the point. The entire point of of um, of making anything within a complex system is that you don't know. Yeah. You can't know. And if you pretend to know, you are lying to yourself. Sure. So what you need uh, the the thing that you always need to do when you're starting a new thing is you need to start with the assumption that you don't know what's that what's going to work. So you need to explore. Sure. But that each thing that you do should be designed to teach you something yeah. about that thing that you don't know. Exploration, cumulative yeah. effects, yeah. building up a, a, a systems in an emergent way, and slowly, you cannot start big, you have to get big. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. I like that. That's, yeah, like, ah, oh, big statement. I like that. That seems like a good place to end it. Okay, mm. well, other than saying eat more cake, because that's obviously <laughs> what you should do, I think that's where we should finish. So, Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, until next time.